and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with... Nobody. Nobody showed up again. <laughs> this is a topic that no one was interested in but me. Or maybe they were. They just didn't feel like they had the the background for it. And we'll talk about why in a, in a second. Because this is something that I think is interesting but confusing. So I got a couple of people who are experts. We're going to talk about ratings today. And by ratings, I mean television ratings, movie ratings. You know, when you look and see something got a rating of four, something got a rating of 16. What does that mean? And I learned uh, through doing this show, actually, that people didn't really know how ratings work. I've mentioned them on a couple of episodes a couple of times and like I'll say, you know, such and such had a rating of whatever and then Katya actually asked me on air. It's like when we did the chair episode, she's like, what does that mean? I was like, aha, yeah, we don't know what ratings mean. So we're going to talk about what ratings mean, how they're calculated, what they're used for, and I'll tell a story about what they're not used for. But first, I want to introduce our guests. So, returning to the show after it's been a few weeks, it's been a little bit, Marcel Walker. Hello, thank you for having me back, Mav. Yeah. I can't remember what the last one I was on for was. Yeah, me neither. I don't remember when you were here. You have weird, very specific expertise here that I'm that I'm so looking <laughs> forward to. You have the expertise that would have made me so jealous when I was 10 years old because I am that big a nerd. What is your experience with Nielsen ratings? Yeah, I don't know if I'd say expertise, but at least in, in experience. So my family, my immediate family, was a Nielsen family about 15, 20 years ago. And we were in the, we were involved in that for several years. And yeah, so we are viewing habits were tracked and we so yeah i know what it's like to have like be involved with that whole system and everything i mean it's been a while mm-hmm. you know like viewing habits have changed the way we change technology has changed so i'm sure the way that this stuff is tracked has changed but that experience it definitely left a big impression on me and it allowed me to see a little bit clearer about like everything comes together in terms of what we watch how we watch it and you know mm-hmm. how all that information's gathered so yeah. yeah so you had like one of the boxes that sits on top of your television and no just- we had so up front, we so at the time when we were approached to do it, like I said, this was about 15, 20 years ago. Every article of like viewing tech that we had in house, so our televisions, our VCRs, our cable boxes, all of it was hardwired into their tech. So they would bring in something. So it wasn't like a box that just sat on a thing. Like literally, they had it took hours for them to install and connect all their devices. Every time they, we had to have something like that done, it was a process. It's amazing. So, yeah. <laughs> Air quotes, amazing. Like it's when it was done, it worked relatively inobtrusively. You know, like it was just there. But yeah, I mean, after we, well, I don't know if you want. I, I could get into it now. I could get it after you introduce our other guest, if you would okay. like. Yeah, uh, I mean, I have questions because I share my Nielsen experience in a little bit too. Sure. But this is also sort of exciting. So we have our second guest is Ranjan Sikar. Hey, Ranjan. Hello. How you doing? And Marcel, I am jealous of your uh, Nielsen experience. I had to work at the company for eighteen years to get the same. <laughs> level of knowledge that you already have. Former Nielsen employee who were in the analytics groups for about 18 years. That's awesome. See, again, I'm just a nerd. Like, here's my experience with it. I've been fascinated with them since I was like a small child, like 10, like 8, 9, 10. I was like reading Nielsen, re- Nielsen readings because I am that much of a nerd. And in college and just after college, I think I did it twice. I, I did it once while I was finishing up college and then once I think when I was, I don't know, 25 or 26. Nielsen does does, they do ratings two ways. They do the technological way, way that Arcel was just talking about. And then they also do a thing where sometimes they will send you a diary and then you're only a Nielsen family for one week. You don't get to. So and so they pay you five dollars to like record everything down, just to write down everything that you watch for a week. And so I got to do that twice. I made ten whole dollars, you know, over.
over a course of two weeks over, you know, five years apart where I got to write down everything I watched and everything, all of my roommate watching that was watching their house. And there's, there's such a feeling of power and responsibility when I had that. I took it very seriously because I am weird. <laughs> oh, you know, yeah, we thank you for it. I mean, I don't think you're that weird. I honestly think, I think, and it's just, again, this is just from my experience, both, both my experience being in a Nielsen family, but also the, what I watched happen as people who I knew found out that's, I think that's part of the mystique and that's part of why people join, honestly, mm-hmm. like, because we, most people don't know the particulars of what's involved. And most people, you hear Nielsen's and you're like, oh yeah, the ratings thing. And then, you know, when we, when my family was approached and you'll have to forgive me with some of these details, cause it's been so long. Like I wish I had kept a personal journal or diary or something of mm-hmm. this, like for the specifics of the details, cause it's gotten a little fuzzy, but I believe they just like called us, you know, they called our house and asked if we wanted to participate and they upsell like any organization or place does. Like we were upsold on like, Hey, so, you know, and you'll be representing all these families and places because it was our family's demographic that caught your <laughs> attention, you know, or black family. There was four of us in it. There's myself in terms of, the, you know, filings that I was the head of household just because my employment and stuff it was myself, my mother, my two sisters, my younger sisters. And apparently we fit a demographic that they were looking for, you know, a group. And so, you know, they, they upsold it. And, I, and admittedly, there was a part of me that responded much like you thought, like you just explained, like, oh, we would get to be one of those families. So <laughs> and they said, that, you know, we pay you a little stipend, you know, it wasn't much, but then we pay you a little stipend and you, you get to be a part of this system. You know, you get to be a part of this thing, this tabulation is like, let's do it. So, you know, <laughs> we signed up for them to do it. And then we, they arranged a date and they sent their texts out to the house. I think they first, they came out just to kind of scope what we had, like how, what we physically had in the house, watch TV on. Mm-hmm. And like I said, so this is like 20 years ago. And, and it's, so it's worth noting, you know, we had oh, three or four televisions in the house. And of the, if we had four televisions, three of them were hooked up cable boxes. And we had like, you know, the full range of things, you know, we had premium services and all that kind of nonsense. We had it all. And we were online as well at the time. And we had VCRs because that's what you had then. So, you know, our, so our main television in the living room, it was a television slash VCR combo. And in mm-hmm. my room, I had a small color television and I had a separate VCR. And I think one of my sisters or maybe both of the rooms, they had TVs and cable boxes. So this is how we watch TV. So they assessed and they sent people a text out to actually hardwire their equipment, the Nielsen equipment into every piece. Like, and again, this took hours. Like these are the things you didn't know up front. Like, mm-hmm. oh, it takes a while for them to do because every time they did it like you had to arrange a day for them to come out and then your day just stopped because it would be and they would you know because they would have to hook it up to everything and then they would test it in that room and it wasn't mm-hmm. until they were like they were satisfied that things were working in that room before they would move on to the next room and next room and when i say they had to hardwire everything i mean everything that had anything to do with tv was separately hardwired into their system because a vcr box is basically a television without a monitor right right so that that meant that had to be wired in as well. And so it was like the cable box, the television and the VCR each had to be wired into their stuff. And then that had to all be grouped together. It was great. So if you wanted to, for instance, to just move a VCR from this room to this room, you had to call and schedule that ahead of time so mm. they could send a tech out so they could disconnect their stuff and you could take the VCR to the room or just like, I want to move television here or whatever. Like it, it was a process. So gotcha. as much as the idea was and the big thing that they would upsell you on at the time and Ron John I'm fascinated to hear like what it was on the other side of this. On our side, the thing they always said was, or what we were off always told was, they just wanted to observe our normal television viewing habits.
habits. Like they stressed that. They didn't want us to alter our viewing habits because we were in Nielsen's <laughs> family. They didn't want to, you know, like, so just watch TV the way you normally would watch TV, which it's in retrospect, it's funny to think about that because just the fact of physically having every piece of television watching equipment in your house hardwired to something, it's going to change the watch you, the way you watch TV, even if it's on a small scale. And then there's the psychological component. I mean, it's there, but to be fair, after a while, you know, once the dust has settled and people are out of your house and you're just watching TV and you're doing your thing. You're back you to do. watching porn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and that was, I'll tell you, that was a little, that was a little daunting too, because I mean, I'm guessing they couldn't, like if you put a VCR tape in, they didn't know what your VCR tape was. But you know, like the idea is if I wanted to watch like a Cinemax movie, oh yeah, they're, they're tracking all that stuff. But then for me, I kind of didn't care. It's just like, well, whatever. Like if this, if I'm America, here you go, America. And then you just watch what you watch. I also, at that time, because really, if we wanted like a full exploration of this, I'd have invited the rest of my family on to talk about what their experience was during this time. But I'll never allow that to happen because for me, it was ultimately no big deal. But it was at least a little bit because it wasn't watching a whole lot of television at that time. So the only pause pause that I had when they were first asking us to do it was, is it worth it? I mean, I'm, I don't really watch that much television. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. But like, this is a pop culture podcast, so this will fit right in. I, it's strange as this will sound. I had a weird sense of civic responsibility in there somewhere. Like, mm-hmm. well, if I represent part of America and America's viewing habits, I think it's my duty to be a part of it. And actually, legitimately, they, you know, yeah. they said they were looking for our demographics. So, mm-hmm. OK, if our demographics is to be represented, it wasn't like I was ashamed or say of our view television watching habits. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was like, OK, well, let's be represented and let's get in the mix here. So like a little bit of that was in my head. There would be times where I would tune into a thing or think about tuning into a thing or turning a thing off or to another. T- it's like, nope, you're not getting this. You're not getting my rating evaluation. <laughs> and there were many days, many days where I cringed because, you know, they evaluated it all. I was fan of a lot of the stuff that my family members watched yeah. on TV, you know, so it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe that they're helping keep 700 Club on the air and things like that. You know? <laughs> So yep. this is how it went. Well, I mean, at that point in particular, I mean, I'll get, in, I'll get into some of the specifics of what it was like on the Nielsen side, but that, that concept of you, Nielsen, are the reason my favorite show got canceled or like mm-hmm. that show keeps mm-hmm. getting renewed and it's taking a spot away from a show that is there. Like, and you hear that all the time when you were, yeah. um, I think Marcel, your point's dead on of like, like you know, at, at Nielsen, they don't, they don't have any stake in the numbers being high or low, right? It's, they need to be right. They need to be accurate because ultimately like, these numbers help, um, they, they help determine how much money should flow when ads are seen on TV. That's the whole right, point. Right. So, like, there's no, you and your family do not watch a lot of TV that needs to be known. It needs to be measured. And yeah, it's, you know, I can't speak to the psychology of the, you know, the way you felt of like, hey, thousands of people are represented by my household and, you know, everything gets magnified a little bit. But the numbers need to be right. Simple as that. And that, or they need to be as close to accurate as possible. And that's, that's why we do. Why, why, why you did uh, what they did. And uh, on our side, you know, we saw the same sort of thing, right? Like, you know, we, I, you know, I worked in the digital part of the business for a while and I could imagine. Imagine, right, when you get like, you know, a meter monitoring your computer behavior, at first that might change how, you know, what you're doing on your computer. But over time, we would have to be like adult content coming towards the top of the list. You know, most viewed, uh, most viewed, you know, content online. This was, you know, over a decade ago. So it was, you know, images and things like that. And yeah, like hope is, hey, it's as passive as possible that you don't change too much of your behavior or, or ideally any right. of it at all. And I don't know if this is a good analogy, but hey, like if you're a reality show, eventually you get used to the cameras and you just go back to the way you normally are. Although 
Maybe mm-hmm. that's not true. You ham up for the camera. Who knows? Hopefully, it's the same concept. <laughs> I think it's a little. Ex- yeah, it was very, that mirrors our experience, I think. And just and so at the time that we were in, we weren't like our so our computers were not really being monitored like that. Like it wasn't quite there yet, but everything else was. That sounds about like what it was in our house. You know, it's not like we we didn't talk about it. You mm-hmm. know, and even when I say like I would cringe with what some of my family members would watch, but even then, it's not like I went upstairs and we you know please stop watching that because no we never had those discussions we just i just stayed out of the room like i typically would i will say again psychologically the way it changed my relationship with some of the things i watched though was like think usually i when i say i didn't watch much that's kind of true but the things i did watch i was a regular viewer of some of which i was really passionate about like like we all are so like just to pluck one out of the ether because it's the one that always sticks with me at the time samurai jack was airing on cartoon network okay yes and i was i mean i was i love that cartoon i still do and so i mean it was like kind of a highlight of my week and i would watch it more than once a week and that's one that i remember being i'm gonna say kind of proud of now i wasn't watching it overtly to keep boost its ratings you know keep Mm -hmm. the ratings up boost them i was watching because i loved it but i was happy that my viewership hopefully contributed in some small way to that show having a place you know in boosting its profile so in that regard like i was i'll say keenly aware of how my viewership was contributing to like shows that I loved and wanted to support being, you know, being there and having some traction and, you know, and, and also reflecting our viewing habits in that house again, because for our demographic, it's not like I just, now I got to watch all the BET shows, you know, cause I got to <laughs> represent. No, you know, like, I was like, no, I'm going to try and adhere to what was requested because I think there's good in that. Just watch TV the way I would, but it did allow me to feel a certain responsibility towards some of those. Th- it made me think, it made me reevaluate some of my own choices with what I watch. Yeah, when I had the diary, and like I said, very low tech, it was literally Nielsen sends you a book. It's like it's a 30 or 40 page blank diary of, you know, which is basically how many TVs they ask you how many TVs you have in your house. And when they ask if you want to do it and I, you know, I'm insane. If you again, the way you become me, the way that you get to be, you know, a pop culture person is I have televisions in almost every room in my house. I think I I legit right now I live with just my wife. There are two of us who live in this house. I believe we have six televisions that are not used. <laughs> we have we mostly only watch three of them and then we have like three others that are just kind of you know they get used on occasion and, mm-hmm. but again there's only two of us and that's just how like I'm like the room that I'm in right now the podcasting studio in my home has a 55 inch television directly across from me in case I ever need to put something on television while I'm watching but anyway uh-huh. so so like I was always like that I was always very into TV when I got my first job I've said on the show before I used to, I worked at a comic book store when I was a teenager in my high school job one of the first things I bought was my own television. I bought a little 13 inch uh-huh. color television that, you, that I had in my room, which I still own to this day. It's a little CRT that was like there for it's like, hey, I need to have this TV. So I wasn't even counting that's in my basement doing nothing. So anyway, it work? yeah, it works just fine. I just don't use it Great. for much of anything. I mean, it, it works in that like it can show a picture that is four by three in a world <laughs> where all content is <laughs> by nine. Um, so but, yeah, but technologically it does function. Yes. Right. You know, for a, a TV that is literally, I mean, I bought it when I was 15 and 48. So for TV that's 30 something years old, sure, it works, right? But yes. Anyway, the point is I watch a lot of TV. So to me, it was always like, well, I was aware that like people are paying attention and I want to get this accurate. And then Max, who does our theme song, I'll never forget because he, you know, when the second time I did it, which was in like 2003, when I got the book, he was like, all right, I need you to record and watch She Spies constantly because he loved the TV show She Spies. And I'm like, we are not saving (laughs) She Spies. And he's like, no, we need to save She Spies. (laughs) (laughs) So, and this is 
not a joke. When he knew that I was gonna that I was gonna do it, I, I was like, I am not watching this show. I'm and I'm not and I'm not gonna lie to Nielsen. So Max came over to my house, recorded She Spies. He recorded like two episodes of She Spies on my DVR. Came over to my house and like sat there in front of my TiVo and watched She Spies over and over again. The same episodes, the same two wow. episodes. Because <laughs> he just because it was the only way that I would. It was the only way that I would write down in the. So you know, so it's like literally, there's this one week where She Spies viewership went up by like one person because. <laughs> because <laughs> nobody was watching this garbage television show <laughs> and max listens to the show so he's listening to me talk about it right now but that is true he's just like no we've got to save she spies and, and she spies didn't get saved but my point being i don't think people understand how ratings work they I, don't. Don't think I, I don't think people understand what ratings are for ron john you said that people get mad at nielsen well you wanted to cancel as though nielsen has some vested interest in like controlling what's on television <laughs> nielsen just nielsen seriously just wants the check and i don't mean that in a bad way i mean they're job is they sell numbers. They don't care if the numbers are good or bad. They're selling you the numbers one way or the other. You said it. They care that the numbers are accurate because good numbers and bad numbers cost exactly the same amount of money. They just want them to be right because that's how people make decisions. But I don't think people even know what the numbers mean. And the reason this particular episode came up, if you check, there was the week that the January 6th hearing started and then Trump and his people and Trump said it on Truth Social because I, yes, I have an account on Truth Social. I do not do this. I do it so you don't have to. But Trump and his people started complaining when the January 6th ratings came out because their argument was that the January 6th committee was getting bad ratings because its ratings were lower than Young Sheldon, which was on that week. It was on the same night. And I was like, okay, first off, Young Sheldon, you might not like Young Sheldon, but it's one of the most popular shows on broadcast television. It's actually super popular. And second, yes, Young Sheldon beat up any individual broadcast of the January 6th hearings, but it was airing on like four networks. So if you add them all together, then it easily beat every else on television that night. And I know that most of the people crowing about it didn't understand it. I'm not convinced Trump understands it. Trump just knows that, that high numbers are good and low numbers are bad. And he's very concerned with what his ratings are. He always has been. Oh, the opinions gets the best ratings. Yeah, he's always been that guy. But I don't think he actually knows what the numbers mean. And I don't think most people know what the numbers mean. And I know even most academics, because every time I cite them for something that I'm doing like professionally, whenever I talk about them, I don't think most of the academics know what the numbers mean. They just like, and it came up when we were talking on this show once we were talking about the TV show The Chair and I was talking about how many people were watching it and Katya said okay so Mav is that good or bad and I was like oh what do you mean it's like and it was because I literally said oh well, it's probably about a million people and she's like I don't, is that a lot a million sounds like a lot is it a low but I don't know millions not a lot so I guess first I just want to ask Ranjan because you you work there what's a ratings point because I don't think people know people see that you know this show got a rating of four this show got a rating of six this show got a rating of 16 this show got a rating of 30 and people were like that's meaningless and you're right. It's meaningless, especially since the numbers represent a different amount of people, depending on whether or not you're talking about broadcast or cable, which makes no sense. But that's how it works. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's even within the wall. I think sometimes a little hard to like put a simple definition against because to your point, there's questions of is it a national rating? Is it a local rating? Is it a rating <laughs> for TV on you know broadcast versus cable? Is it a digital rating? And so on. So I think conceptually, at least the way I view it, a rating is an expression of two things. Number one, on some level, like what percent of people or how many people are watching something? And number two, if it's a if it's a piece of content that has like you know half hour, an hour runtime, or the game that has three hours of runtime. 
time, what percent of that the content was you? So mm-hmm. just like to break it down into like, okay, if you have, let's say, the Super Bowl and 100% of America watches 10% of the Super Bowl, you'd have a 10 rating. Mm-hmm. And if 10% of America watched 100% of the Super Bowl, you'd also have a 10 rating. So <laughs> a rating basically is a combination of how many and if it has a, you know, a duration, how much of that will tend to watch. And that last part, I think, is really important when mm-hmm. it comes to it. It shows that, hey, you know, live sports in particular, that, hey, the game is close in the fourth quarter of the second half and maybe the rating goes up. So overall, I might pull the rating up or uh, it's a blowout. So people start tuning out and the rating starts going down. And at any rate, the use case, there's basically two reasons you would care about a rating. Number one is you're running ads against some kind of content. So if someone wants to know how many people watch the content, so they know how many people watch the ad. And sometimes the ads are different, sometimes they're not. But like, you know, that's one use case is, hey, a third party cares about the number because they put some money up. They want to know what they got for it. The other is things like what we were talking about earlier of like, did I win? How is my, you know, my network for me? And things like, I want to go out in the press and say, we're the most watched network or the, we're the most watched cable program or the most watched uh, cable news network in you know, Arizona. Those kinds of things, types of things. So it's, I got to, you know, there's a check involved and we need to know what the number should be or, you know, if I get a trophy for winning the season, uh, I think tend to be the most, uh, most common reasons people would care about it. There's also, I mean, <laughs> this was, this took me a while to understand myself. So I know most people don't watch it. Don't understand it. There are two ratings you care about. There are the rating and there's the share and it's not clear what they mean. So when you see, if you actually read broadcast magazine where Nielsen, again, I know I'm weird. I first started reading. I mean, this is not a joke. I first started like look at reading broadcast magazine when I was 14. I was a freshman in high school. I am that much wow. of a nerd about this. Yeah, this is how I mean, like, this is like, why do people go out and get PhDs studying pop culture? Because they're me. I am specifically the kind of nerd who does this. OK, so I started. This how did is you not started end up at Nielsen is the question. It was right I there. I, I don't know. It'd be interesting. But anyway, so the way these ratings work, if I see that my show has a 10 rating, 10 is super high because the rating number is the number of televisions equipped to view your show that are viewing your show, which means that like technically speaking, the cable market is by default smaller, less so than it used to be because like very few people only watch television over broadcast today. But it's still in order to get the first number, you have to have a device, usually a television capable of viewing that station. So if I have the Super Bowl and I have a 10, this is 10% of all televisions capable of watching the Super Bowl are watching the Super Bowl because the Super Bowl is on broadcast television. Whereas a cable rating is not directly comparable because fewer TVs are capable of watching cable television that are capable of watching broadcast television. So it's just capability. Now then there's a second number after that, which is the share number, which is the number of televisions currently in use, meaning TVs that are currently watching anything that are watching your program. So you might have a five rating and a 10 share. That means that 5% of all TVs in America currently viewing your show, whereas 10% of all televisions that are on are currently viewing your show. So like usually the share rating is bigger than the initial rating. And then it gets more complicated because what Nielsen is actually measuring are TVs, not people. And this confuses everybody because some programs are more likely to have multiple people viewing them than other programs. Super Bowl, for instance, is a very big example. The Super Bowl has the, some of the best ratings that you'll have ever for the network, you know, for that year. But the presumption is also that people don't watch the Super Bowl alone. They have Super Bowl parties. So you probably at least all your, your entire family's there. So you might have three or four people in the room or you might have 20 people in the room and it doesn't matter. It doesn't actually affect how, you know, the rating other than the fact that they're not you know, watching the television at their house at that time. So you have to like start figuring stuff like that out and then you end up with things
things that are weird where it took them a while to realize how popular Game of Thrones was because people were having view parties for Game of Thrones every week. So there were fewer televisions watching Game of Thrones than people were like, oh, this show is actually huge because it turns out the average viewership for every ratings point is actually like eight people. People were just like congregating and having dinner and drinking wine and watching Game of Thrones. So like things like that become complicated and all of that matters because you want to sell ads or if you're a cable channel like HBO and, and you're and you're doing it without ads, you're just trying to show value to your shareholders. They don't and they shouldn't really matter to regular people, except that conceptually we seem to like root for our team. So regular people get really stupidly excited that the thing that they like is doing well. Oh my God, dude, you know, like, you know, people are watching Peacemaker. People are watching Daredevil. The nerds are winning. Well, not really. What you're doing is, you know, you're the product, right? So you're not really winning anything, you know, <laughs> like, like well, HBO was winning, but you know, you feel but, like they're doing you kind of, yeah. okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to, okay. I'm going <laughs> to let in a big secret. Well, I don't know so much pushback, but the idea is, and you know, as we get farther and farther, well, not even really, I was going to say farther away from like advertising on TV, but there's always advertising, sure, you know, like is. there's always been, it's just Walk changed. Walk she talk, eat Cheetos through the entire episode. They sit yeah. there and eat Cheetos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Paid, if you've watched the, if you watch the new She-Hulk show, Frito-Lay paid big money to Marvel oh, and Disney oh, because oh. they sit there and they're like, Cheetos are amazing. And I'm like, really? Always, <laughs> okay. All between product placements. And there's always a form of advertising, like, because this is America and we monetize everything. But, you know, if that's happening, like, if the measurement of that determines, does a show stay on the air? Mm-hmm. So I actually do understand the proprietary nature. People want their shows that they love to stay on the air. So if, mm-hmm. you know, the ratings are indicative, hey, not as many people are watching, so the ratings are going to go down and you know why advertisers aren't going to want to have you know aren't going to want to utilize that as a forum to advertise product meaning why is the you know why is a network or whatever going to want to broadcast that show then people start getting more protective of their thing so i actually do kind of understand some of that when we when my family was when they were like giving us protocols up front about being involved and what our rules were one of the rules they stressed like i think like they were very good about stressing all the things i can't say they didn't explain what the expectations were but they one of the things they said was do not tell anybody that you are a Nielsen family. You don't mm. want to let anybody know because you don't want to, you don't want to let anybody know. Like, because if you let people know, they may, you know, they may want to try and affect your viewing habits and blah, blah, blah. So they said that very clearly, numerous times, made it very clear. They didn't make us sign any waivers or anything to that effect, but they very much stressed. Don't tell anybody that you're a Nielsen family. So I told people. I didn't. <laughs> I feel, in re- again, in retrospect, I think, well, that's, that is a part of human nature. So there's a reason why they stress it. If they really wanted that to be effective, they would talk to people who've been in that position because now what I would say to people is, yeah, don't tell people because it seems cool at first, you know, and you think I'm just going to tell my inner circle or whoever I'm going to tell. And that's cool. You know, it's fun. It's our little secret. It's not your little secret, though, because people who like you can even explain like, look, I'm just supposed to watch TV the way I'm supposed to watch it. You can tell them the numbers that they told you because they told me some information pertaining to numbers at the time, like who we represented and everything. And I'll come back around to that. But the people I told unilaterally at some point would come to me and go, oh, Marcel, you got to watch this show. You mm-hmm. got to watch this show because that's I'm please. And you would tell them, like, look, Max I'm will try to make you watch She Spies is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, so what you were talking about as far as, you know, number of televisions that are turned tuned into a show versus number of viewers. Total sense. Like, that's totally on because in our house, like I said, we had multiple TVs, but you figure the television in my room, I was almost always the only person watching that versus right. the television in the living room were often all three my 
mother and both sisters were often watching that at the same time. So it really did vary. And that's why I'm sure they had everything hardwired in to track that so they could take those things into consideration. But I absolutely had people who, <laughs> and I can't say like fully pressured me into that because ultimately <laughs> I'm in my house. I'm going to watch what I want. And if it came down to that, I'd go, yeah, I watched it. But I didn't, you know, like, which wasn't even the case. I just use, I just watched what I wanted. Watch what that, that sort of pressure is there. And on some small level, for me at least, there was uh, at least this consideration like, oh, is that a good show? Should I maybe try that? Should I watch this thing? <laughs> oh, that would suck if that goes off the air and it's, you know, worth reserve. I don't know. So in terms of the numbers that they relayed to us, and again, I don't remember all the specifics, but I remember this much. You know, they broke it down in terms of like when we watched a show in our house, the number of households that represent, the number of people that that represented. You think of like the number of people in America. There's a lot of people in America. Like we don't really think about how many people, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people there are here in America. But, you know, a ratings point is so big, like a single ratings point consists of so many people. Mm -hmm. Our individual household was like a fraction of a single ratings point. So like you would have needed numerous houses like us to make up that one ratings point. But still, we if we watched a television show, that was the equivalent of if everybody in something like Heinz Field was watching Mm -hmm. that show. So like 30, 40,000 people. And I used to think about that, like like visually, I could picture like if I was watching a show, this is the equivalent of if they showed this episode of Samurai Jack on the big screen <laughs> and Heinz Field and everybody's watching it, that's what this is the equivalent of. That's a little trippy, but that also gets to that sense of sort of kind of empowerment. Like I represent that many people. And it was also for me, it was a very comforting thing to think of. Wow. Right now out there, there's at least 40 some thousand people watching this show. Like I'm not the only one because if I'm watching it, there's people like me watching it and I'm just representing them. That's how I absorb that. But it was a powerful thing. Like, you know, even today I'll drive, you know, I'll be in a car and I'll go past one of the stadiums and I'll think, yeah, <laughs> I represented you. <laughs> I mean, it's a weird thing, right? Because you the idea of what you're actually doing and how they're used. Yes, it does feel empowering, but what you're really doing is, you know, you're just, you're being a cog that for marketing data, right? Like Nielsen, we said, talked about at the beginning, Nielsen doesn't actually have any vested interest in any show succeeding or failing. That's why the system works, right? People get mad at them. And, and I've heard people say this too. Nielsen, you know, Nielsen's broken. You know, they're again, they're not broken. They don't care. And I don't mean that like something's wrong with the company. The reason Nielsen works is because they don't care. Like that's the entire point. Like they are completely agnostic to what the content is. It's just a number. That's the point, right? So Nielsen doesn't want to save your show. Nielsen doesn't want to cancel your show. They just want to count. Are you watching it or not? That's it. And I think what ends up happening is you end up people who don't understand ratings, who do things like, like I've seen people complain, well, you know, my show got canceled, but like Nielsen's just not accurately reporting it. You know, I see all the people talking about it on Twitter who are talking about it. And it's like, no, what you see are people who love the show. So they're talking about it on Twitter and everybody that you see talking about it. That's the entire audience. That's it. There's nobody, <laughs> there's nobody else. And where it becomes, it becomes tripped up is something like, here's a good example, the Snyder Cut, right? The Snyder Cut happened because for years, all of these fanboys kept saying, no, you got to release the Snyder Cut. No, come on. HBO, Warner Brothers, do this thing, do that, you know, like, and like people, we're going to watch it. We're going to do it. Blah, 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 blah. And they, this is a, this is, you know, we need his real vision. We need this. And then we're signing a petition. We're renting a billboard and, you know, all this stuff. And then finally a pandemic happened and HBO was like, we could eat content. So fuck it. Let's do it. Right. And I'm going to kill people for people who listen to the show. If you're a big fan of 
of Zack Snyder. I'm sorry. It didn't do well. It's a three hour and change movie that is not good. I understand if you like it and I'm and I and when I'm saying it's not good, there are things about it that I enjoyed as well, but it is not a sustainable vision in order to be a Hollywood blockbuster. It's it would never have been that in theaters. It just wouldn't have been. He wasn't, you know, it's like four hours long. It would have been cut down and it's paced all the fuck over the place and it's just not an accessible movie. And again, not everything is. Go back and listen to me talk about Blade Runner. I loved Blade Runner. I love the Blade Runner sequel. I hope there's not a Blade Runner 3 because producing any Blade Runner 3 just for me would be fiscally irresponsible. And what I'm saying is the Snyder Cut fiscally irresponsible because they got caught up in this idea of people signing petitions and tweeting about it and it seemed like there was a bigger audience because everyone who wanted the Snyder Cut so wanted it so bad that they were like, fine, let's spend $50 million and get this thing on the air and see what it looks like. And there weren't 50 million people. There just weren't. Like the people who wanted the Snyder Cut just kept saying so over and over again. It was not financially viable in order to get it. And HBO knows because when they had real numbers, they were like, oh, that was really more like 100,000 people. And that's not a lot. (laughs) Well, I think that goes back to scope and scale. You know, again, Mm -hmm. it is hard to envision how many people there are in America and then how many people there would be. Yeah, I mean, watching television at any given time, how many people does it take to be watching a television show or a television show to be considered, you know, successful or a hit? And especially in a medium, because when I'm saying television now in the present tense, it's a broader spectrum because we have other means of watching shows. You know, we have streaming shows, we have cable, we have computers, we have all these different ways of watching our media. So you're spreading viewers out across that spectrum and then you're trying to track all that. That's crazy. Like even when I was, when our family was involved in it, it struck me as crazy. But in retrospect, that seemed more manageable to me by far, really, than the landscape today. And there are so many people out there. It's easy to, it's easy to to not be able to picture how many people it would take to be watching something for that thing to be considered successful. Because, you know, success is a sliding scale, you know, so for this broadcaster, this network, this cable channel, this streaming service, you know, you might have, I don't know, 500,000 dedicated viewers. That'd be great, you know, whereas for somebody else, you probably need a couple million really for it to be sustainable. So like it's such a weird spectrum there to consider. And most people, it doesn't go any farther than they just have a show. It's their favorite show. They want that show to be on or movie or whatever. And hey, everybody I talk to is enthused about this thing because they're probably talking to other people like them who love that thing. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, you know, you get, yeah, you take the temperature of the bigger room or the building or the neighborhood. Maybe not quite so many people. And when you really get into fandom, like like we're into, and like the show is for the most part dedicated to, I say this as somebody who is a fan of a lot of medias. I mean, how many times am I going to reference Samurai Jack where people realize, (laughs) put Marcel on a call with Jendi (laughs) Tartakovsky. We got to talk about that show. But, you know, there's a reason there was a gap of a well over a decade between seasons three and four of Samurai Jack because there's a limited... Or in like 2017 or something, right? It's like a long time. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was pleasantly surprised when they just said they were going to come back and they were going to finish that off. Well, and I, it's a whole lot. It's, we need a whole episode to get into my feelings about that last season. But, you know, but hey, I'll tell you what, if I was a Nielsen participant now, they would have gotten my ratings point, however infinitesimal it is in the grand scheme of things for every episode. <laughs> of that show. But again, uh, like I try to keep a sense of the perspective, like even, you know, if you represent a stadium full of people, mm-hmm. a stadium.
stadium full of people alone is not enough to keep most TV shows on the air. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what I was getting at with the Snyder Cut thing. So according to HBO's numbers that they release, and, they, and HBO doesn't really, the streaming world's a little different because, and Ron John, you can maybe speak to this. Uh, there's a, it gets complicated between what Nielsen can track and what the streaming networks keep secret for proprietary reasons. They're starting to play ball more than they used to, though you've been gone from the company for a while. So I don't know how much you know other than what I know publicly. But from what HBO says, HBO reported when the Snyder Cut dropped, HBO reported that they had something like 1.8 million people the first that first week people were like super excited. And the Snyder Cut bros were like, yes, we're going to restore the Snyder Cut universe. We're going to say then it went from 1.8 to something like I think it went up to like 4 million. people, And people were like, yeah, we're winning. We got 4 million people watch this. 4 million sounds like a lot of people. It's not like 4 million is literally what a, a decent sitcom gets any given random night on any network. But then it got worse because when they what HBO eventually acknowledged when there was a study, they're like, OK, 4 million people watch this. But what we mean is 4 million people started watching the Snyder Cut. Snyder Cut had an attrition rate of 66 percent. Two thirds of people just bailed because it's four hours long. And they're just like, no, we just don't care anymore. It's 242 minutes. And basically, if you can't make it through the first hour, you're probably likely to watch all of it. But only like one third of the audience stayed through the first hour. It just that's a problem. So now you're not talking about 4 million people anymore. You're talking about a million, million two. And a million two is not a big audience. And when you start realizing stuff like I remember people were friends of mine were always very excited about, you know, how come the the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. never show up in the Avengers movies? And I was like, well, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has, you know, it's like three million people watch that show every week. They're like, yeah, that's a lot. And I'm like, no, because three million people watch that show. But literally a hundred million people are going to see this movie. They mostly don't know. <laughs> like like a hundred million people go see the failing Marvel movies. You know, the big Marvel movies are half a billion people are going to see it. They don't know what you're talking about, right? Like, it, like, like you can't just rely on stuff that happened on this. And eventually the S.H.I.E.L.D. viewership dropped down to like 1.2 million or something. It was like 3 million was at its peak. So you can't rely on this very small number. And then when you start, you know, like, I mean, I'm a big fan of Riverdale, but that's like half a million people. It's not that big a show. It just isn't. It's a, like these shows are much tinier than I think people realize they are. But if you're a big fan of something, it feels bigger because, you know, you, you watch it, you talk about it with your friends. It feels like everybody's watching this. No, not right. really. <laughs> yeah. You just know the people who are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so. I, I think this like uh, what I think both of you are hitting on is this, that, like this measure of intensity of viewership or loyalty or vocalness of a fandom. That's always been, a, uh, I think, a challenge to really quantify. I think, you know, map to your point, like the average audience, like the number of watching the whole thing or, or, you know, the traditional rating just wouldn't clear the bar for some of these programs. But then, you know, Marcel, you mentioned, you know, that there are other shows like, you know, Family Guy, Futurama that have also come back after not clearing the bar on from a rating standpoint, but they had some sort of devoted fan base who either, mm -hmm. you know, were buying DVDs or were buying merchandise. And like, there was some other quantification beyond the rating that, that made those shows viable to, to come back. That, that, that is the dimension that, that you know, has always been, you know, interesting mm -hmm. to watch within the Nielsen walls and streaming in particular. I think, you know, you know, Matt, you hit on this is an area where, you know, Snyder Cut, like, yeah, that probably needs to do better than the numbers that, that it did in order to like establish for, a new pattern. Much, yeah. For how much money but, it was making. Yeah. Right, right. But in general, like, I, I think, I, you know, let's say like, you know, Ron John as a person hypothesis here is like when you're watching something on streaming, maybe it's more of like a purposeful, like I chose to watch something out of like a thousand mm -hmm. choices. I didn't like the I didn't like time slot dictated for me. And mm -hmm. in cases like that, maybe it is okay. Something that has to be that passion bar or something along those lines versus let me just throw on whatever's on channel two and then I'll just lean back and, you know, mm -hmm. do something else. Maybe it is measuring something 
different. And uh, this I probably can say because it's been, you know, well over a decade at this point. But back in the day, I made a model that was trying to predict DVD sales for TV shows using all the data that we had in-house. And as, uh, as you might, as you, well, the first thing we thought was, hey, let's look at ratings and see if ratings predict DVD sales because most viewed shows on TV should be the most viewed on DVD. And what we found, not at all. No correlation no, at all. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm curious what you're going to say because before you explain it, I would predict the exact opposite, actually, just as a cultural theorist, I would expect the kinds of things that one watches on a DVD or on a streamer to be very different than the episodic things that I watch a week. I would expect, like, so for instance, I know that Riverdale survived because of Netflix, not because of CW. CW kept using it, but they were like, oh, well, we're making way more money on viewings later because the structure of the show airs itself better to watching on a streamer or on a DVD. Other examples of this are Battlestar Galactica, Breaking Bad, things that are long form stories as opposed to episodic stories where it doesn't matter if I happen to miss episode four. So I would expect it not to match up. Um, Dead on. Like, literally, we ran the correlation. It came out at zero. And like, on one hand, you're like, oh, crap. Like, like oh, how are we going to solve this problem? What we did find was that conversation about a show online actually was very tied to the DVD sales. So exactly what you're talking about at the time, we were talking about, you know, posts on message boards, blogs, because this was, you know, well before social media platforms were the dominant sort of place for those conversations. But the blogosphere and message boards were basically the source of, you know, indication of passion here behind, I will put my money down to save a show as opposed to I'll passively watch it. Or maybe if I'm really a fan, I'll go to Marcel's house while he's a Nielsen family. <laughs> or Mav, I'll go to your house and like fill out the diary. Like, but, like it, it totally measured a different thing. And I think that really hits back to the, you know, some of the original questions you're asking around like, you know, what's the point of a rating? Like the obvious one of, okay, like an ad's running. So like both sides, you know, like that one, I think, you know, reasonably like, like vanilla, right? Like it's okay. The number needs to be representative. But these other metrics, like are there rating, like, are there rating, similar rating concepts around, I would spend money to save that show. Or I would, you know, I'd pay a buck a month or a buck an episode or, you know, these, you know, Patreon or Kickstarter type of, mm-hmm. of metrics that like, get into something deeper that cut out the middleman, so to speak, and more directly reinforce the relationship between like people like us and people who make the content. I mean, who knows, right? That's, like, I've always been similarly fascinated by this concept. And, you know, the rating is the rating. It's not the only thing that matters. And I find it fascinating because I want to segue a little bit. We run out of time into another conversation that I've seen lately because television shows, we don't just care about, you know, is your TV on or not? That's all the, that's all the Nielsen rating is really measuring. On is it tuned to this program? That's it. It does not matter if you like it or not. And people, this is something that I think people have trouble understanding when it comes to social network ratings as well. And I'm going to, cause I'm going to talk about the way things like, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever work, right? People don't understand that engagement is not liking. <laughs> you know? and, and I mean this very specifically. I am measuring, when I look at a television rating, I am measuring, did you keep this TV on and tuned to Snyder Cut? Maybe you hate it. Maybe you love it. I don't care because you're still watching the ad. That's like, that is the intention that I am measuring, right? And I think people miss that because there are a lot of niche programs that have super devoted fan bases who love it, love it to death. But there's what your market is a tenth of this show of people who watch something and 
just bitch about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, then, and what I think you're saying is there's no difference between a hate watch and a love watch if you're right. watching. And I've heard it said about relationships that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. So yes. if you apply that to, to this, you know, an instance like this, you know, the worst thing you can have is people just not watching what you're broadcasting. And I mentioned earlier about like my, my, my mother and siblings watching 700 Club and all those shows. And honestly, I would just clench up and storm through the room. I just couldn't. I just couldn't. <laughs> Why you still talking about it? Because they still watch these shows. They tell me, and they're so happy to be watching these shows. It's but I will say, okay, to focus a little bit more on, like, I guess this more or less. So they also watched, and I'll include myself up to a point with this. They also watched Days of Our Lives. Like that was a go-to soap opera in our house. And there were some others over the years before and after, but like that's been historically our family's go-to soap opera. So Mm -hmm. I stopped watching that show, and I just like them. I mean, I watched it very regularly for years, but it was actually some point in the early to mid nineties when I stopped because I was working, didn't have the time, et cetera, et cetera. They kept watching. They had more access and they just watched and they would record it. And it's like, they were super. And when you've watched a show like it's on the air daily mm-hmm. for long enough and there's a threads of narratives, you can step away from it for months at a time, come back and you know. I stepped yeah. away from Days of Our Lives for, for years and came back and I'm like, okay, I know who Stefano is. I know mm-hmm. who Demir is or I can catch up. You can <laughs> jump right back in there. Yeah. Even now, like I'm astonished at some of the actors who've been on that show for decades and they're still there. It's weird because they're old, but I'm old. So it's like, okay, they're we're old together, but they're old. But like Days of Our Lives, my, my people watched that show. Now, obviously over the years, you know, just because the way numbers go, I'm sure the numbers for Days of Our Lives fine, but they were devoted. And so some of what I'm also hearing whether we're talking about Days of Our Lives or the Snyder Cut or shows like like you, you mentioned, Ron John, like, like Futurama or other shows that have been away and come back and you know been rebooted or whatever, Mad About You or you know whatever. There's people out there that love that show. And then and when shows are away for a little while or at least like out of the popular mainstream, sometimes the audience actually grows in their absence or the desire for it, you know. And that can be a big motivator to bring something back. You know, to, mm-hmm. the, there will be more of this thing that people were fond of. And I, I personally do think that led to at least some of my Samurai Jack I bought, bought back. But I see that. I mean, we're looking at Quantum Leap reboot that's about to come back. Yes. I'm I watch Quantum Leap very regularly. was not thrilled with its final episode, but I watched that show very regularly and have very fond memories overall. To my recollection, it was never like a blockbuster show, but it was warm and people had familiarity with it. Mm-hmm. And now it's kind of a big deal that show is coming back. Why would you bring a show back after, what, 25 years off the air? There's got to be... You you know, there's reasons there. And I think they're actually kind of rational reasons. Like I could, it's worth a shot. What do you have to lose? We're going to have to do an episode on Quantum Leap because I'm also a big fan. But uh. the last thing I just wanted to throw in there and it's my like my last, I guess, anecdote about being in Neil's family. And this has to do with <laughs> growing disenchanted with the whole rigmarole and how we got out of the Nielsen system too. So like I said, they anytime we needed to change anything in the house with the stuff, with the equipment, they had to, we had to have appointments. It's like, it wasn't just like it happened. You had to schedule days or sometimes even weeks out it was pain and they also intermittently had to come in and like test equipment and do stuff and that took a while too and so at one point they had to come and schedule something and i was just kind of fed up because like this is ridiculous and i was just like you know what you can just pull this stuff out because i'm like i'm done and normally we got like a small stipend every so often. and when i say small it was small like here's ten dollars here here's ten dollars there that was the one time they called back and they went you know if you're willing to if you could stay in for a little bit we'll send you fifty dollars right now i went that's fine send me fifty dollars we can stay <laughs> <laughs> and I totally that one admitting was the one time it was a completely mercenary move like you know what? I think 
$50. When I moved out, so I, you know, for anybody listening, if you're still listening at this point, when I moved away from my family, like I was older than most people are when they moved out. I was like 36. I mean, you know, like I had to let the Nielsen people know that I wasn't going to be living there anymore. But I had, I think I had the option of allowing that to stay there. And I admittedly, I'll say it now because it's many years removed. I purposely said, no, we don't want it in the house anymore. <laughs> because yeah. I just could not abide personally by that being in that house, tracking my family's viewing app. It's like, I was like, nope, we're going to be done with this right now. So <laughs> it's never completely unbiased. As long as we're human beings trying to record this data, you know, it's an, as I see it, an imperfect science. And I, Ron John, you can totally, you know, c- contribute to that. But I, I just realized it's an imperfect science at S. But I do appreciate that I had a chance to participate in it. You know, and like mm-hmm. I, it gave me a window into this media that I would not otherwise have. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely an imperfect science. I think it's in some ways like an insane solution to this kind of problem. <laughs> like, like, like if you wanted to, if you're starting today and you're like, okay, there's no way to know how many people are watching shows on TV. The idea, I think to your point, Marcel, like let's go into tens of thousands of houses around the country that are randomly selected and like put meters in their house, like this amount of overhead. Like, you, you go to a, like a VC like, like, like firm today and say, I had this idea. Like, you'll get you know, laughed out of the room because like there's just so much investment and infrastructure to make it happen. But I think that's in some ways the like the reason it worked is that like that, you know, was put into place, you know, decades ago, the idea of a panel and like it's not going to be perfect, but we're going to get as close as possible. It'll be representative. And I think uh, there, there have been some upgrades to the, you know, the technology and the experience over time. So like one thing that like part that there, there are measurement capabilities now that can track not only like how many people are watching, but like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the age of the person watching the program. Yes. It's not every machine, but like, like we have, you know, people meter type technology and portable meter technology to know, hey, are you watching the game at bar versus watching it at home? I just said we, they, sorry, I still do that. It's been six yeah, months. Yeah, like, okay, so how long ago did you quit? Yeah, okay. So, yeah. so, uh, so there, there's, I think, always going to be improvements, but I think to both of your points, there's always going to be like these like, areas of imperfection that like will just be challenges. HBO and sort of like premium cable, anything that doesn't run ads, like it's kind of a different ball game in the sense that yeah. like, you know, there is no transaction happening there. So like stakes for getting like <laughs> the measurement right are different. They become right. much more about vanity stat or the like you win or the how popular is House of the Dragon versus everything else that's on. Right. But um, they also right. care because they, I mean, they don't have ads, but they do, they are slaves to subscribers, right? Because I do want to talk yeah, about, yeah. I want to talk about HBO a little bit with, uh, with their, <laughs> we should talk a little bit about where things are with their metric, their new HBO is part of Warner Brothers Discovery, which is now owned by WBD, Warner Brothers Discovery, a new company that was created by the merger of Warner Brothers and the Discovery Channel, buying away from AT&T and a guy named Zaslav who is in charge of it and who has different, very interesting views on how, how his networks should be programmed, some of which I agree with, some much of which I don't, but I understand them and I don't think a lot of the chatter does understand it, right? Like, so you, like you've seen a lot of people going like, well, it's just racism that has him canceling Batgirl. And it's like, no, not exactly. What it is, it's numbers, which are sort of arguably inherently racist or not inherently racist, but systemically racist because of the way American society is. He's probably right as far as, you know, is releasing Batgirl as is a financially viable decision? Probably not. And I really 
really want to see this movie. But should it be a purely financial decision? I actually don't think it should be a purely financial decision. But if he's but if he's just there for financial reasons, which is how he's running it, because he's got HBO Max is a streaming network. All he cares about is how many viewers can I get to subscribe by airing this show? And does it match up to the amount of money I can make by taking a tax write off? And honestly, probably not. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, I'll just be honest about it. Just given how the streaming networks work, you know, the, what I understand of how they work and the way numbers work and the way the way cultural groups form, he's probably not going to get enough viewers on Batgirl to make it a financially viable program to watch. And that's also probably true of a lot of geek shows that fans of our show probably like. So it's going to be a hard road at HBO Max. I do think it's worth mentioning, though. Yeah. Yeah. The entertainment industry, it's a risk related yeah. industry. Yes. And that's the so, problem. Yeah. So like if you're, you know, it's been my observation across popular media that, and this is just, I think, in, in endemic in humans, period. Nobody wants to be first. Everybody wants to be first to be second. So, yeah. when, <laughs> so when something is amazing, you know, out of nowhere, that surprise thing that nobody ever did before. Like when I was just watching a documentary on Disney Plus about industrial light and magic it's called mm-hmm. light and magic. And they talk about like the world of special effects before Star Wars. You know, Star Wars kind of sort of came out of nowhere. Nobody wanted to invest in science fiction like that. Nobody wanted to do it. And, you know, Lucas was very much discouraged, even though he had been successful prior to that, but not in science fiction. So like he was very much discouraged from making this movie. Here comes this movie. Boom. Explosion. Suddenly studios left and right want to make science fiction oriented movies and television. And Battlestar Galactica and even the movie Alien. Like mm-hmm. that was in part made because of the popularity of Star Wars. So, you know, nobody wants to go first. There's this risk aversion, but mm-hmm. it's an industry. So they try to be super calculated with stuff. And that doesn't really work either. All that does is it, it leads to a landscape of stale media where the only thing that breaks out and becomes successful is when somebody takes a risk and they break away from that. Mm-hmm. So, I, you and know, Zaslav is not that guy. He's not that guy. And that's the problem. He's And he doesn't want to be that guy. He says he's not that guy. He has that job because he's the guy. His edict right now is I'm going to save us $4 billion by cutting stuff. That's his plan. And he might and, in the short term. And, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. but if you, you know, it's if you're risk averse, there's you no might reward. save that money now. There's no reward. So you're just, mm-hmm. I've rarely seen a business or industry or anything that really shrinks to, to sustainability. Really? Mm-hmm. You can overextend yourself, of course. But, you know, the big, for the background question, my, my thinking is what is the best way to make this movie profitable? Make a good movie. That's not a cure all that because I mean, plenty of good projects out there fail mm-hmm. and don't get viewers and get crap ratings, at least initially. Like, you know, I did not watch the TV show Firefly when it was on the air. And that show was on the air when I was in the Nielsen's, you know, like or around that time. Like I but I just I didn't watch it. I was introduced to that show afterwards and came to love it. So, you know, some of it, I think, is just timing. But there is that inscrutable part. Like there's the part you can't decipher what makes a hit. How does it? Happen. But I think the surest thing you can do is make good content mm-hmm. and hope that the viewership will follow. Or you have to accept that not all content necessarily has a blockbuster. Sometimes you just sure. do things for... So, uh, Zaslav, I'm less concerned, and I know this is going to sound weird because we have a little geeky show here where, you know, I know a lot of our listeners are going to be like, hey, you know, I want to see Batgirl. I want to see Scoob, whatever. I'm more concerned with his with his decisions about CNN, which he also owns now. And he's very interested in making his news network profitable. And one of the ways that CNN has been losing market share is CNN. And I know a lot of people who don't like CNN because they're like, it's too liberal or it's too conservative. I know. And I have friends in both sides who think it 
it's too much the other thing. CNN wants to be a news network. They want to be an old school news network. That's what they want, which says both sides, even if one side's insane. But numbers wise, being a partisan news network is just a much better way to make money. Fox will always do better. Fox is killing it because people don't really want news. What they want is to see people agree with them. So Fox's ratings do better. And frankly, MSNBCs are doing pretty good trying to be a liberal version. And so like the apparently the edicts coming down are seeing telling CNN, can you put more conservatives on so that we can get some of that audience? And the thing is, they're not going to get that audience. They're not. Fox has that audience. CNN, I think, is probably better served not trying to be the most profitable thing at Warner Brothers because <laughs> they're not going to be. You know, it's a news network. And I think that's their lane. And I think that in the long run, in the 20 year plan, I think being the guys in the middle is probably a smart. And by the way, I'm not a, politically. If you listen to this show, I'm not a guy in the little in the middle. I'm very much a guy on the left. Right. But I think being the guys in the middle is a smarter play than being the guy on the left or the guy on the right or a news network. This may be a yeah. bad like example, but I mean, I think it, it did remind me a lot of being at Nielsen of like you have advertisers on one side and networks on the other side. And one side wants the ratings to be low, so they don't pay as much. The other side wants the ratings to be high, so they get paid more. So like it's the same kind of dynamic, right? No matter what the numbers are, you like, like someone's mad about it. And like to your, like I think to your point, it's, no one is fully satisfied, right? Whether it's like, like you know they're too liberal, they're too like if you're hearing both sides of it, it's like you're probably right, right? Not necessarily to your point of like okay, if one side just completely off the reservation and like sure. you know neutrality and objectivity are inherently not the same. Okay, fine, that's a different story. But I think that's a that's a really that's a really interesting point. One thing I wanted to tie this back to that, that you mentioned earlier is like kind of the DEI story across the media and TV landscape because uh, that was something we actually my last couple of years started measuring. And uh, as you might imagine, like so we started measuring how representative TV content was of the demographics of the U.S. for race, ethnicity, orientation, and, and gender. As you might imagine, it wasn't like TV in general tends to underrepresent basically every minority group across the board. And where it's under underrepresented is instructive. And news was one of those genres, and this is you know a public report that we published where uh, you know it tends to be particularly underrepresented in terms of whose voices are on the news. So I think that's just an instructive metric of like, hey, we've got measurement now to understand. It's not going to go all the way down to like you know every person from the boardroom to the you know the production staff go on, but like people who are on TV on news networks are they representative demographic country? And you know, looking by genre, like there are now stats on mm-hmm. things like this. So that might be a way to at least have another variable in the room outside of just ratings of like, hey, like maybe we don't want all of our content to skew a certain way that doesn't need to be representative. Maybe you want to have shows for different types of audiences. That's another way to sort of bring a different data point into the discussion. So it's not just, oh, the rating didn't hit the number we wanted, so bye. And you can have a set and a Marcel, to your point of like, you know, a basket of content. I hate that word about it. I just said it. A basket of content <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, that represents who you want to be as a content writer and uh, and not just have to have a criteria that every single thing in there has to clear this individual bar. And maybe that's, you know, you go back to like the reason The Wire made it five seasons was not ratings. It wasn't even awards, right? It was 100% like executive like, show mm-hmm. and word of mouth. So, uh, mm-hmm. and those things matter. And then, you know, the media can effectively change the world. <laughs> and one would hope, and so this is where I want to make sure I get this before we end. There's another story that's coming out with the, you know, with the merger of Warner Discovery also came the selling of the CW. And this is a story that came out that I just loved because people have been talking about it and giving hot takes on it and sort of getting the wrong idea. When Warner Brothers sold the CW before it merged with, they set up for sale knowing that they were doing this merger 
they were going to become Warner Bros. Discovery, and, and it just recently sold. And the new owners are sort of cleaning house on the net. Arrowverse shows, which, you know, we've loved on this show, on this network, even though, you know, they've taken a plunge, but like Monica and I both talk about how we still love. They're all ending. The Flash is the last one, and it's going to be done. It's a question as to whether or not the Superman and Lois show will show up. We'll, we'll, we'll stay. They've lost a bunch of other networks. And then this report came out this last week. It said, uh, last week as we record, probably a couple weeks ago for the listeners, there was a report that came out that said, it turns out that the CW's average viewer age was 58 years old. And then the network is like, yeah, we're going to go after the audience that we have rather than the audience that we wish we did. Because all the net, all the CW programming looks like it's for teenagers, for like 16-year-olds. And they're like, that's not, 16-year-olds are not watching this network. The average viewing age is 58. Because as Ranjan just pointed out, we can now figure out the metrics of who's watching the thing. Now, this is misleading, however, because yes, it is 58 is the average viewing age, but that makes, that's the second lowest of broadcast networks. The lowest is Fox at 56. ABC, CBS, and NBC are all slightly older because that's how averages work. And people don't really understand this, that averages are the average age, not the youngest age. And it's a median in this in this case as well. And you're looking at a technology that young people mostly don't use. This is a viewing age on television, not a viewing age streaming things on their phone. I was talking recently with my nieces and my nieces don't understand they're 15 and 11 and they do not understand that TV has viewing times because it's not been a case in their lives. They know sports do. They know that like if they want to watch a football game, they've got to watch the football game when the football game comes on. Otherwise it gets spoiled for you, you know, but like, you know, like that's when that's live and they understand conceptually why it's like, because, you know, the Steelers, the Browns, the San Diego Chargers, you know, whoever, whatever team they're playing right now. So they know that, well, if the Steelers are playing right now and I want to see the Steelers right now, I have to watch it right now. They understand that conceptually. But like if they want to watch one of their favorite shows on television, you know, whether that's like something on the CW today or when they were kids, like even being little when they were like three and watching Sesame Street just comes on whenever they want Sesame Street to come on. (laughs) And that makes I mean, when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. And it also speaks to how I'll use ambitious it is to try and track of media in this case, because it's like, you know, back in the day, if you wanted to track listeners on of you know, radio stations, you could kind of do that. Like that was manageable to a degree. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to track then music sales, you know, a new albums are coming out or whatever, you could do that. You could track. But if you wanted to track, how often do the people who buy those albums listen to their albums in their homes? That's a much more difficult thing. Like, how right. do you track that? And right now, <laughs> as media is becoming that, it's coming a thing like a, like an album, which by the way, final sales are coming back. I'm just not that as an anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, I've got a record player now. I've been yeah. listening to more vinyl than I have. Same here. Like, yeah, I mean, it, and it's kind of amazing seeing media make a comeback, like media that was commonplace make a comeback, but it's untethered media. You know, like you right. can't really track something that's untethered. And I think that's all. I know that's a relatively new, new development in our media because like, we're all about the same age and we grew up with, even though we didn't think about it, but our media was tethered to something. It was tethered to a time frame and a station and you know you had to be here at this time to watch it and also i think our relationships were different so maybe our media was tethered we kind of had we were tethered to watching it if we cared but we had an untethered relationship like if you missed something whether it was something you really wanted to see or just something you were watching because yeah you missed it and then you maybe you I gotta know who shot jr gotta know who yeah, shot right. no matter, no matter <laughs> if you watch the show or not i need to know who shot jr it's all anybody's gonna be be talking about so yes right. so now you know would you just describe you know people for the last probably people who are 20, 30 years old, they don't have that relationship with media. And why would they? Well, um, they do, but only they do, but it works differently because it's based on a streaming model, right? Like you, like you have some 
shows, you know, you have like Disney is trying to bring back this week week thing with their Marvel and their Star Wars shows, right? But on the whole, Stranger Things just drops a season of television on Netflix. And, you know, you want to talk about Stranger Things, so everyone's just going to watch it this week, right? Or even a couple weeks ago for this show, we wanted to do a show about Sandman. And so we knew that the time to do a show about Sandman, just looking behind the curtains, because and if you listen to our Sandman show, we were talking about comics, which were 30 years old as much, if not more than we were talking about the Netflix show. But we knew that the time to schedule for a show to talk about Sandman was just the week that Netflix was dropping this thing. So we made sure that the four of us that were on that episode all watched the, <laughs> watched the whole series, right? That was the thing. I was like, all right, we're going to all watch Sandman now so that we can talk about this on the podcast because this is the week that America and in fact, the world are talking about Sandman, right? And that's, it works like that now as opposed to, you know, I got to get, I got to get it in sometime this week because it won't matter next week. It works like that more than in more than I got to get it in, you know, Thursday night at 8 p.m. is when Friends comes on. So that's what we're doing. Sure. <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's how it, yeah. Yeah. And like, I think the, the key to like measurement streaming is like on one hand, like I think you know, a lot of these like, new ways of watching content, like there's a digital touch point. So we mentioned earlier how like, you know, Snyder Cut, we know how many people have started watching and how many dropped off where Netflix has obviously really great data internally on their own platforms. Like in some ways within your, you know, your ecosystem or your app or whatever you want to call it, like you have a, some you know, pretty good data on what your users are doing. But I think ambitious was the word you used, Marcel. And I think that on for like a third party coming in and saying, well, I want to measure everything, which means I got to have a relationship with every streaming provider out there, or I need to have some kind of, you know, technological integration. I need to have one with, you know, your big social media players. I need to have one. I still need to have the box that sits there, pick up traditional TV and, you know, and so on and so on. Like it, just, it really has gotten complicated to measuring the TVs themselves. Even if you got everything in there, is it enough? Because most people <laughs> under, you know, insert age here are watching on their phone or on their tablet. And it really, like, even though there are more like data points on like who's watching what where like stitching it all together is like a crazy engineering and math problem and yeah that's what Nielsen's working on and they and Nielsen's able to do it I mean frankly because they well not just because they're smart but also because they've been in the business for you know 60 years or 70 or however long like they however long 99 99 awesome 99 well see there you go right because recently they've been working on trying to make sure they get they get streaming numbers and you've seen you know HBO and Netflix were sort of slow to jump in. Disney was there from the very beginning and people were like, ah, I don't know if I want to share my things with you. And everybody just sort of does because well, they're Nielsen and I guess this is the way it works. Everyone, you know, but like no one necessarily wants to because they all think that it's some big proprietary secret but it's working because Nielsen is entrenched as the company that does this, right? And it's the reputation that they have of, like I said, seriously, we don't care whether your show's popular or not. We're just going to tell you what it is, right? We're not going to tell you. We're not pulling for anything. We're being agnostic, right? And that works in a way that I think it's their reputation that is allowing that work more so than, you know, so than anything else, right? Like, like, like it would be really hard to start a new company, I think, that did that. Yeah, I mean, there like, are other companies out there trying this. And I think to your point, like some are going to have really good solutions. I think they're going to, you know, Nielsen has like competition in this space now, but to your point, like 99 years of, hey, like being the gold standard and like the head start on this, understanding the problems that like, yeah, mm-hmm. the apps aren't going to measure everything perfectly themselves. And like there are calibrations, there's fraud, there's bots, like all these kind of things. There's a lot in there that 99 years of doing it will give you a head start on. So we've resolved nothing. <laughs> yes. But no, I think it's a fascinating question. And I, again, I mean, obviously I said, I started reading these numbers when I was 14 years old. I was such a nerd. <laughs> and, but you know, because I care about stuff like this, I get to be a professor who looks at this, I guess. <laughs> you know, my, my life is weird, but I don't know. It's, it's, they're fascinating numbers. It's fascinating problems. The 
data analysis is just interesting. And I think that's part of why we care. Like it's the black boxness of it. I don't know is, let me try that again. I think that's part of why we care, right? Because people like the idea of points. They like the idea of winning. And it's what we talked about at the beginning. You want to know that, you know, you want to know that, wow, I'm a geek. I like superhero shows and superhero shows are doing great right now. Or maybe you're a horrible person. Maybe you want, maybe you just want to be like, I want to prove that shows with black people and women and gay people are crap. No wokeness. And like, so, so you see the, so you see people who are like, you know, trying to tank Ms. Marvel or She-Hawk by giving negative ratings on IMDb, not understanding that no one gives a <laughs> what, what an IMDb fan reading is. It, not even a little bit. And for all the people who are trying to save the shows as well, who are like, I, I see a lot of people are saying, oh, well, you know, everybody, you know, this happened with something niche, the Expanse, right? There were a lot of people who were like, or Sensei, you know, these people were like, no, we need to rate these really high on IMDb and on Rotten Tomatoes audience scores. And people were like, why is it not working? I have my petition that I did with uh, change.org and I got a million signatures. And the answer is because there are places that we're looking and it doesn't matter how many signatures you got. We know how many people watch this show. <laughs> you know, like, right, right. That's what more. like it does. You can love the show if you love it all. the Again, I know people hate it. Blade Runner 2049. I think it was brilliant. It's one of the best movies that have ever been made. I, it's probably even better than the original Blade Runner. I loved it. Making another Blade Runner, fiscally irresponsible. <laughs> no, no shareholder should ever allow that to happen because it's just this movie that, only, that like I'm watching going, this is amazing. And looking around and it's like, like when I went and saw Blade Runner 2049, I went, my wife went because I made her. There were seven other people in the theater. <laughs> I'm like, oh. like, oh my God, this is probably not a good thing. But I enjoyed the three hours that I was there watching that super long movie. And that's kind of, I think people need to understand that aspect of this, that ratings determine things like popularity, which is part of pop culture. Doesn't necessarily determine quality. No, and, they, no. and they never will. And I don't never mean will. that. As, and I don't and I don't mean that as a cut towards content makers or towards ratings, tabulation places like, like Nielsen or towards people who are fans of it. That's not what ratings are. Understand what you're looking at. They are a mark of popularity. And I think they're an important marker of popularity. It's why I have a podcast about <laughs> so, <laughs> so there you go. Marcel, Ranjan, thank you both for joining me this week. This was fun. I enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thanks learned. for inviting me. It's great talking yeah. with you, Ron John. Yeah. Right. It's my pleasure. Yeah, well, you've, I hope you come back sometime to talk about whatever else. Anyway, in the meantime, people want to follow you. Is anywhere they can follow you online or anything like that? Uh, yes. Uh, well, you go first because this is your first time here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, Ron John, the name is R-O-N-A-N. So I've got a website, old school, fake Ron John, fake R-O-N-J-A-N.com. Someone got the OG, so I went and just got the fake version. And up there, I've got, uh, speaking of ratings and rankings, I do daily NBA power rankings and weekly NFL power rankings at that site. Oh, so wow. Are, so, you, are you, so you play fantasy balls with hands? I do, I do. Oh, <laughs> nice. I have so much to talk about. But we might have to have you, oh, no, there's no way, there's no way that my co-hosts are going to let me have you do a whole, we, we do this game every week. We haven't updated it for a while, but we every year we do this game, sorry, we do, we do this game every year and we haven't updated listeners in a while, but we have this this fantasy box office game that we play on this show where we draft movies that are going to be, that are going to be playing throughout the year. And then I make everybody play this game every year. And I'm losing horribly this year because all of my shows got pushed because of all of my films got pushed for either pandemic reasons or problematic reasons or, you know, <laughs> for lots of reasons. But like, but we'll be doing that again in January. It's, it's my, I'm a massive fantasy. I'm, I played fantasy football for years and I haven't been playing the last few years and I might have to get back into that. But right now, 
now it's all about fantasy box office for me. Any questions? We should Tell me in. <laughs> yes, I'm game. <laughs> uh, Marcel, what about you? Oh, man, I can be found at all. First of all, if you just go into your search engine of preference and just type in Marcel Walker comics, I will pop up. I yeah. rest assure no. you. But <laughs> you can go. You can find me at MarcelWalker.com. You can find me anything related to the comic book Let's pal that I work on for the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh. So if you go to the Holocaust Center's website, hcpgh.org or Hutz Pal, I believe we have our own domain for that, H-C-H-U-T-Z-P-O-W.org, I believe. Or if you just look that up, Hutz Pal, I'm all there. You can find me, you can contact me. I'm also on all the social media, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Not all the social media, it's like those three. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not on TikTok. I have so a couple that are like dormant stuff. I'm thinking about going back to MySpace just because. Like I never relinquished that account, but I feel like it would be like running around in your house with nobody else there. I, ch- I checked mine like about a year ago. I was like, oh, this is still here. That's that's something. <laughs> <laughs> we should get like, I, I, like, I want to see everybody on Moss at some point just go, I'm done with it. You know what? I'm going back to MySpace and then like vinyl Friendster. MySpace makes a comeback. Friendster. I want everybody to go back to Friendster. I mentioned that on the show this is a few weeks ago. I mentioned that like I wanted to bring back Friendster and I remember Hannah, Katya, and Monica going, what? <laughs> I <was> like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I realized I'm so old. <laughs> I remember Friendster. Oh, yeah. Friendster was awesome. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and as always, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or Friendster or MySpace, I think, at Chris Maverick. <laughs> All the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show. All those same places. Well, not all those same places. Again, we never made a MySpace. We never made a, we never made a Friendsburg. But you can follow the show at most social media places at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where we post about whatever we're going to be talking about next week. And you can leave us comments on this or any other show. You suggest topics. You can volunteer to be a guest. You can just tell us what you thought. Listen to the show. What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? Did you learn anything? Let us know in the comments. I always like reading those. If you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from and do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review. If you leave us a five-star review, especially on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, that boosts the algorithm and makes us more popular. And it's especially fun if you don't just leave a rating, if you actually write a review that just talks about how much you love us. I like reading those. It makes me feel good about myself. You know, NBC recently canceled Days of Our Lives and by canceled it, they're not killing it. They're just moving it Peacock. And that's hard. It's really hard to, you know, it's an end of an era. And I, it's weird. Yeah, it's going to be really weird. Know that it means that the world's numbered. But anyway, if you're a fan of Days of Our Lives, you know, write a comment to us telling us. That's what I really want to see. I would love it if there was just this weird rating on the Vox Popcast channel that's like, I also love Days of Our Lives. I <laughs> that's what I want to see. <laughs> that was a really weird story that it, yeah, they, they go there. Anyway, it goes to their that. Anyway, I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd once again like to thank both Marcel and Ron John for joining me. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.